Praise the Lord. The sound of fellowship. Love it. Praise God. Y'all sound like you're ready to party. I like it. I like it a lot. Testing one, two. Can you hear me out there? I feel like I'm yelling. We're rattling. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. I have battery. I don't know. It's there. You want me to use the handheld? All right. It's a problem when you come to church and there's no power. <laughs> you're at the wrong church, but hey, we got power, so you're in the right church. <laughs> Praise God. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Welcome home, Pastor Dennis and Jill and family. Come on. Glad you guys got a little bit of time away. Some rest and relaxation, some excitement, I'm sure, a number of other exciting things. Uh, Praise God. Um, yeah. It is good to be in God's house. This is uh, this family. Look at your neighbor and say, hey, man, I love you. It's good. It's good. Uh, hi, Lucy. We have all, we've got Floyd's family. Gretchen, it's good to see you too. Good to have you guys with us. God bless you. Sarah. It is your, well, Floyd and Lucy's family. Lucy, I love you. <laughs> I was so proud of you at the celebration of life service. You, you were just, it was beautiful. And uh, what a great service. We're so thrilled to have you with us and the family with us today. God bless you. Well, it's, uh, we've got lots of announcement stuff and there's information inside your uh, worship folders. And uh, I want to encourage you on a number of fronts. Church camp out, sign up. If you've not signed up for the church camp out, we want to encourage you to do so. If you say, hey, we're not campers, well, that's okay. This is not camping anyway. This is more glamping. It's like putting a little hammock out in your backyard and uh, staying with a couple of friends for a little while. I mean, legitimately, it's this way because there's electricity, there's cable TV. I mean, if you make it down to our campsite, we have a microwave. <laughs> it's, it's almost embarrassing, but it's a good time. There's warm showers. There's showers. There's a swimming pool. I mean, it's, it's great. So come and be a part. It's going to be a ton of fun. So we're, we'll be looking forward to you to be there. Um, immediately after service today, we have our kids town, toddler town, and baby town uh, barbecue. It's, it's a meeting. And if you're... If you're wondering, how do I get a hot dog or how do I get a hamburger, you sign up and be a volunteer. So if you happen to see Gil the Grill Master, just call him uh, Grill Arnt, not Gil Arnt, Grill Arnt. And uh, if, if, you, if you smell sausage or you smell hot dogs or you smell burgers and you really, you want to know the inroad, the inroad is... You're serving Children's Church or you're serving Kids Town, and uh, we would love to have you be a volunteer. We are also putting together a little team. We're going to call it the SOS team. Everyone say SOS. SOS. Now, Jenny, SOS is a signal that we need some help down the hallway, someone to hold some babies. And so we have the SOS team. So if you're, whether male or female, whether you are and by the way, I'm, I'm now in what we would officially know as grandpa status. So I've, 
My sweet wife, she's grandma status. So we have a baby cooking in the oven right now. Super excited about that. So uh, if you're like one who wants to hold kids, this is marvelous opportunity for you to join the SOS crew. So for sometimes there's kids that just need a little bit of love and a little extra holding. And uh, we're going to have something that flashes up on the screen that looks like SOS. It's really 505, but we'll just put it in there. SOS. And we're going to have that team that would just kind of respond to that those SOSs. So mamas and papas, if that's you, hey, come to the barbecue today. Can I get an amen? Because there's information for you. Now, if all of you show up, I'm going to be in trouble with the grill master. So... <laughs> But if that's something that you'd like to be more engaged in and help, I see the grill master back in the back. Let's just give Gil a, a hand. Thank you, brother, for all you do. Appreciate you, man. So thank you. And if you would, if you would just absolutely love to serve one Sunday a month in the children's department, and I have said this for years, in fact, I've been in ministry for about 23 years, and I used to do children's ministries on Sunday nights at our former church, and I've done children's ministries here, uh, but not on Sundays during the service, because I'm normally with you, and although you're glorified children, we get to have children's ministry here as well. But if I was not a lead pastor, I would serve in the kids' department, because there is nothing that is more fun than working with children. Can I get an amen? Amen. If you love kids, raise your hand. All volunteers, thank you for volunteering this morning. Yes. All right. Hey, we love kids, so let's engage in kids' ministry. Can I get an amen? Jenny Leckholt, will you just stand real quick? We want to just appreciate Jenny and all that she's doing with our children's ministry. Yeah, you are awesome, sister. Boom. Okay. She recently took this role over, and it, it's, you're just doing a dynamic job. Thanks for your organization, and it's just marvelous. And, and as, as your family gets an opportunity to be away over the next couple of weeks, we're just praying God's blessing on you and Joel. And our junior hires, did, did we already release them? Or is, they're, they're summer service. That's right. Boom, starts today. Bam. Okay, we're good. Uh, ushers. I'm going to invite our ushers to come, and uh, as they're coming and preparing to service in this time of generosity, let's give it up for our ushers because they are just a good group. <laughs> Alex Hayes, you're looking good, bro. Appreciate you, man. Let's pray and ask God's blessing, and I want to just encourage you in your area of generosity. At Hillside, we, just, we really encourage biblical stewardship. I don't know how to say it any better than that. Biblical stewardship, that we would obey God's word, and we would submit. We would really submit all, because it all belongs to him, and we're stewards. And so I invite you to bring all the tithe into the storehouse. Invite you to bring alms, those extra gifts that we can bless family members and community members who find themselves in need, and that we would bring in offerings, which is for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both here in America and all the way to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are generous. It is your character. You are a generous God lavishing upon us, your children, the love and the grace and the mercy and the blessings of being stewards of all that you have entrusted to us. Lord, let us honor you with all that has been entrusted to us. And God, may you receive these gifts. May you multiply them. Lord, may you help us in the application of and distribution of these gifts so that the gospel would go forth powerfully and effectively in our community and beyond, in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 And as our brothers are serving us this morning, uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, as we continue our walk through the New Testament, we are in John chapter 8. We were in John chapter 7 for about six weeks. And because I'll review this morning slightly, we'll still be in John chapter 7 for a little while. Um, John chapter 7 really is a transition in the life and ministry of Jesus. He has, and by way of remembrance, all of the chapters of the Gospel of John total out about 21 days in the life of Jesus. So 21 days of his three and a half years of ministry are in the Gospel of John. And their focus is really on feast time. So John is identifying this religious calendar, if you will, of the Jews. And he's following Jesus in the midst of 
the religious festivals. And so it's in John chapter 7 at the festival, if you will, of tabernacles. It's the seventh mosaic festival, and we've talked about this in detail. And it really is a big to-do. It's a seven-day with a plus-one-day bonus festival. And every single night, the whole temple court area is lit up with these massive lights, these candles that are aflame with oil, and they light up the whole city. And all of the people are encouraged and inspired to participate by building a tabernacle adjacent to their homes or in their backyard or somewhere up on the Mount of Olives or somewhere where they have this temporary tent that they're going to live in for seven days in remembrance of their time in the wilderness. And so chapter 7, we see Jesus' ministry also shift. He's been healing people. We saw the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the man who had been infirm for 38 years. And Jesus is going about and healing people. And now in John's gospel, the shift from healing in a more demonstrative way to teaching the truths of the kingdom of God. Paul writes to us in the book of Romans and says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can look at the history of the nation of Israel and see all of the miraculous things that God did for the nation Israel. The Exodus alone, can you imagine the parting of the Red Sea? Imagine being in that group when the sea opens up you know, walls of water on all sides and this group of potentially three and a half million people crossing over on dry ground. How fantastic that would be. And then three days later, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're wandering in their hearts and they're complaining against God because they've run out of water and they're going into all kinds of things. The miracles don't hold people fast in faith. Jesus shifts to teaching the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this is an encouragement to us, Jesus. And this is a beautiful thing because in reality, if we did a quick history lesson on the life of Jesus, we can go back to all the way when Jesus was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. And we find Jesus, remember he, his family was now leaving this Passover time in the city of Jerusalem and they make their journey back to Nazareth and as they're on their way, three days into the journey, Joseph and Mary are like so pretty much thinking Jesus is with our relatives in this big entourage. They're navigating through the entourage only to discover Jesus is not with the relatives and they get in that panic mode. And finally, they make their way back into the temple area and they find Jesus sitting with the doctors of the law and the Pharisees and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin folks. And these are people who know the scripture and Jesus is reasoning with them and asking questions and he's seated. And we see this position of authority that Jesus is sitting and teaching, sitting and teaching. Teachers would sit in that day. And you know that the scripture even tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would seek out the seat of Moses where they could teach from the seat of Moses. Well, that's the position of authority. And so we find Jesus often sitting. Well, in chapter 7, he's sitting and he's teaching. And we know because the text tells us there that it is the last day of the festival. And it's at the last day that the procession of the priests is different. Every single day for the preceding six days, the priests and all of those that are part of that entourage would make their way over to the pool of Siloam, which is fed by the spring of Gihon. The whole spring fills the city with that water, and it's that living water, so to speak. It's drinkable, potable water. And they would go there, and they would take that 
brass vase and they would scoop water up and then they would make their procession onto the temple court area and they would pour out the water and it was in remembrance of when God gave the children of Israel water from the rock when they were traveling in the wilderness, when Moses struck the rock and the rock brought forth water, that was a remembrance. And on this last day, they go through the whole ceremony, but they don't scoop water up. They go back into the temple court and then they go through the motion of pouring water, but nothing comes out. And then they would pray a prayer found in Isaiah. And they say this prayer, and it's believed that it was at that very moment that Jesus changed his posture, and he stands up, and he makes a declaration. Is any, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me, and out of them will flow rivers of living water. So the whole priestly group, the thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that would be there in the temple courts, they would hear Jesus, the Messiah, stand and make that declaration. A fascinating section of scripture that's leading us into chapter 8. And so I want to pick up, though, in verse 37 of chapter 7. And we're just going to read this portion because John... He not only tells the narrative, he also commentates on it very quickly. And then he gives a little more detail, and that leads us into verse 53 all the way up through chapter 8, 11, which will be our text this morning. So chapter, 37 verse, or, uh, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52 first. It says, On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's John's commentate after the fact. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me pause here for just a moment. And as Pastor Dennis was praying this morning, he mentioned there are those of us who want more of the Lord, more of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, more power in our living. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism in the Spirit of God, and it is separate from salvation. Every person whose faith is in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future. But Acts 1.8 tells us that uh, to reminding the, uh, the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God has gifts and operations for the believer that are predominantly made manifest in the life of the believer outside of the four walls of the church. And there are marvelous gifts, and that's another, it's another sermon series, and it's another opportunity. But we want to encourage you to be praying for and asking the Lord for all that he has for us in the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit, verse 40 goes on and says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands upon him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him with you? Or why have you not brought him? The officers responded and answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered and said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee, and I'll stop there for just a moment. 
It's a group of men who are believing they're in the right place and they're not. They don't have truth. Even their statement, search the scriptures, has any prophet come from Galilee? The answer to that question is yes. There's at least two, Jonah being one of them. And so even they don't have all of the information that's pertinent to the reality. And it's very interesting to me that no one is inquiring of Jesus, where are you really from? Where were you born? That would be a pertinent question, right? He's not asked that question until well into his trial, and he's asked that question by Pilate. Where do you come from? Where do you hail from? Where were you born? And he doesn't answer the question. So we come to our text this morning. This, this has been the end of the festival. This is a time of celebration, and all of these things have occurred, and there's confusion. Many believe this is the prophet that was promised, one like Moses who would come, the prophet. Others, this is the Christ. This is Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, God's salvation. And so there's confusion and a division. And many of the people, the commoners, there's fear because if they put their belief and faith in Jesus, they're going to be kicked out, if you will, of the synagogues, and they're not going to be welcome. And so there's much there, and there's fear. Verse 53 says, and everyone went to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This section of Scripture, verses 53 through verse 11, there is textual criticism about this, and you can do your own research on this. The early church, uh, there, are, there are parts that were not included for specific reasons, but as early as the first century, the fathers, the early fathers, the Antonician fathers included this portion of scripture, believed it was textually correct, believed it was part of the canon of scripture, and it, they really just didn't know where it belonged in the timeline, some of it one, one case it was put in John chapter 7 right after verse 36. Other places it was put in the Gospel of Luke. Bottom line is, this is a, it is canon of Scripture. This is a story and an event that occurred in the life of Christ in his last days, if you will, on the, on the earth. And so it says that everyone went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives which was his common practice. And certainly during this time, his own tabernacle would have been set somewhere, and it's likely uh, on the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The word again there is a significant word in the text in that this was the practice. Remember, he didn't come to the festival until the middle of the week. That's when he made himself. His brothers encouraged him to come. He says, I'll come, but later, not yet. And then he made his way in secretly. Middle of the week, he began to teach openly. And so now he is again that day after the festival in the temple. Those who are still there come and listen and sit with the master. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, 
and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, in these next few moments, as we look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, pray our hearts would be inspired and encouraged. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive the invitation to transformation in our own lives. So God, will you be glorified and we give you thanks in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 Praise the Lord. I've been processing this portion of scripture for a number of weeks, woman caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus, this is an example of Jesus dealing with his own critics. There's a number of uh, groups of people in this text. There are a number of subject matters in this text. This narrative deals with cultural concepts that you and I deal with on a regular basis. On the screen, you'll see a list of them. Adultery, moral law. Moral law, I mean, the very nature that we have moral law says that there is a moral creator of that law and uh, it begets its own moral creator. And so, but this idea of engaging in sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage, uh, that there is a law associated with that and there are realities about this, not only in that day, but in this day as well. And where do we get our absolute answers from? From the Lord, from the word of God. Marriage. God established marriage. That's, that's his idea. That's his blessing. That's, that's his gift to mankind. And so he gets to set the parameters around what marriage really is and what marriage conceives of. Two people, a man and a woman, and in the midst of that covenant relationship, the legal place where two people can become one flesh, where a man and a woman can engage in intercourse and it be okay, legal and right in the eyes of God, blessed by the Lord. And so marriage, we find in this text capital punishment the practice of executing criminals for certain crimes in society, civil law, civil law. And we have responsibility in civil law, do we not? We absolutely do. And we want to see civil law applied with biblical principle and so that there would be understanding and the why behind the what, if you will. Laws in general, culturally or divinely prescribed regulations and rules for living. Our very first doctrine in the Christian faith is that the word of God, that this is the word of God. It is authoritative, it is uh, inerrant, infallible, and it is our rule of faith and conduct. It is our guidepost. It's how we live our lives. And so this is a critical matter in having laws that govern. And the beauty in the New Testament and the New Covenant that we live in, it's the law of love. Love God, love man. If we love God and we love man with the kind of love that God supplies, there's things that we will and we will not do. And there's prescription for that. And so this text deals with many of these cultural issues. But today we're going to focus, oh, and the subject matter of sin. The subject matter of sin, it definitively is a cultural concept, but it's a spiritual concept. God defines the terms of sin. It's disobedience to his moral law or moral standard, if you will. Well, today we're gonna to focus on Jesus's treatment of the person, this woman, who, like you and I, she's a sinner. She's a sinner. She needs the love the grace and the mercy of God, just like you and I need the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. And so, how Jesus initiates relationship, identifies with her. Could you, could you fathom what this would have been like for this woman to be brought in public 
We have no idea what her dress was at this point in time. She may have, in fact, had no clothes at all. Publicly humiliated, brought before this crowd, put in front of Jesus and the rest, accusations being made. She's, she's in a state. This is, this is uh, a place of tremendous humility. And I love, and I, I guess in my own mind, I see her kind of just cast down. And she's on the ground. She's probably huddled, probably not lifting her eyes. And I love that our Savior stooped down and got on her level, identified. And I just want to remind every one of us here today that your Savior and my Savior, he identifies with us. He was numbered with transgressors. That is so very encouraging. Jesus understands. Jesus loves. And Jesus' heart is open without condemnation. Without condemnation. And that's beautiful. He got down to her level. Now, he was doing some things when he got down to her level. He was writing in the sand. It doesn't say he was drawing. It says he was writing. And that will bring up some interesting conversation. But we're going to focus on that interaction between he and the woman in just a moment. It should be noted that Deuteronomy chapter 22 gives the law of what should happen. And you can reference this, Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verses 23 to 24. Write that down. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. That's a prescription of what is to transpire for the committing of adultery. When a man and a woman committed adultery, they were both to be stoned. The question that arises probably in everybody's mind when we read this narrative of the woman caught in the very act is, where's the man, <laughs> right? What's the deal here? And I've, as I've read through this text time and time and time and time again, some very interesting things, I think, are keen in what is going here. This, this was to test Jesus. So one of two things happened. Either A, there was a woman caught in the very act of adultery, and this is to understand the Mosaic law and the prescriptions around someone being caught in the very act. It had to have been witnessed by two. An act of adultery would have been a private engagement. So if it occurred, then it would have had to have been a setup in order for someone to observe and another person to observe, to collaborate and have their stories match up. In fact, it is historically noted that it would be almost an impossibility for the law of stoning of one who had committed adultery to ever have been excised because of the improbability of two witnesses ever seeing the event. And so I would pose to you that either A, it was a complete setup and a sham and the woman was just an object of all of what was going to transpire. They used her, set her up, had a man, and then he might even be one of the accusers, bringing them to Jesus so that they could catch Jesus and give opportunity for accusation against Jesus. You see, because the reality is, this is what the Mosaic law says. What do you say? If he says, stone her, he's in trouble with the Romans, if he says, don't stone her, he is in trouble with Mosaic law. So he's between a rock and a hard place. There's no out for him. Just like earlier, Matthew records for us, when they came and they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? A no way out situation. So Jesus, in his wisdom, says, bring me a coin. Whose image do you see on this coin? Render unto Caesar that which has Caesar's image. Render unto God that which has God's image on it. You give your finances to Caesar, you give yourself to God because you bear his image. 
And so he found a way out. And in this situation, he has a way out. And it's beautiful in what he does. Now, I think it's absolutely uncanny of Jesus and what is physically transpiring at this very, very moment. I put up on the screen Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 28. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. We'll read verses 11 through 28. And this is a powerful portion of Scripture. Concerning unfaithful wives would be the subtitle, which is not divinely inspired, (laughs) from those who translated the New King James. Verse 11 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man, let me stop there for a moment. In other words, if he's just jealous and he thinks his wife has done something, whether she has or he hasn't, this is the prescription for what the man is to do. Okay? This is, this is God's instruction for what the man is to do with his wife if he thinks she did and she did or he thinks she did and she didn't, okay? The man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of a ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and no, put no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering and for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Okay? Then he says, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water and or holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, And if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse and shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. (laughs) And someone's phone started talking. And shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take the hand, uh, a handful of the offering and its uh, memorial portion, burn it on the altar, afterward make the woman drink the water. When she, ha- when she has made her, when he has made her to drink the water, then it shall be if she defiled herself and be- behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among the people. But If the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. 
How many, are you, how many of you out there are glad we do not live in the old covenant, in the Mosaic law, and in the times of the wilderness wanderings? The worship team's coming up, and don't let that alarm you. We will finish this morning. But here's the scenario. Holy water in an earthen vessel with the dust of the floor of the tabernacle. Jesus, who has declared... He is the living water. He is in an earthen vessel. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Earthen vessel. Living water in an earthen vessel stoops down and mixes with the soil of the tabernacle. Woman, where are the accusers? And where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. I believe very sincerely, and this is, this is not textual, this is just I believe in my own heart. I don't even believe that the woman necessarily committed adultery. I think it was part of the whole scheme of deception. That they wanted Jesus to judge on something that never occurred so that they would know that he was not Messiah. And it's very possible that that was the case. And the way that Jesus addressed this and what we see transpiring pronounces her clean and pronounces her not guilty of any sin except for potentially collaborating with the priests who sought to seek to bring deception. This morning, I'm reminded potentially of what Jesus would have written in the dirt or the dust on the floor of the outer courts in the temple area. Exodus chapter 23 reads this way in the first verse. It says, you shall not circulate a false report. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. The doctors of the law would have known exactly when the first Hebrew word was written, they would have immediately been taken to all scripture that begin with that word. That's how familiar they were with the law. That's how familiar they were with the text. That particular statement, you shall not circulate a false report, is six characters in the Hebrew alphabet. Six characters. And their characters are just simple markings from right to left. He would have just been able to write those out very quickly. And they would have immediately thought, don't circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Immediately, if that's what he was writing, those six characters, they would have been convicted in their heart and know what we are trying to do is deceive and it's going to cause an innocent, potentially innocent person their very life, depending on how this judicial thing works itself out. It could be Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Nine Hebrew characters, that first statement. Quick, penciled out. He wrote it out. They would have been able to visually see it immediately and would have been taken right to Exodus what we now know as Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. They would have just mentally gone to that text in their heart on the scroll and known what it was. It's very possible that it was Jeremiah, the prophet. These words, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Written in the earth? Six characters. Six characters in the Hebrew, and they would have known immediately he's quoting Jeremiah the prophet. And it goes on to say, written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord. And that would have cut them like a knife, cut them in their heart. They have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. These men would have known. And so I submit to you really the meat of today's message in short order. 
whether it was deception, whether she committed adultery, whether she didn't commit adultery, all of those pieces are ultimately not the purpose of this text. You see, every one of the men who brought her, publicly humiliated her, all the deception that was going in their hearts, they begin to drop their stones one by one, and from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away because of the conviction that was in their own hearts. Then he spoke these words, and this is the meat of today's message. He lifted himself up. He's eye-to-eye contact with her at this point. Perhaps at some point she's standing now. And he says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And I want you, I want you to hear her response. No one, Lord. Lord. Initially, he was addressed teacher. I believe in her heart, something shifted. I believe that this is very possibly this woman making a declaration, you are Lord. I believe in you. I believe in you. And in here, we potentially could even see the salvation of this woman, a sinner who needed grace, love, and mercy, who received grace, love, and mercy, and identifies the Lordship of Jesus Christ, even in her statement. Anyone who confesses me shall be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The title of today's message is The Invitation to Transformation. Jesus gives her an invitation to be transformed. The life that you may have been living, the life, even if it was just a life of deception and you were part of this collaborative thing to deceive so that an accusation could be made against me falsely. She said, he says, whether adultery, whether this, no matter where you are, you are not condemned. And this is what I believe that God would say to each one of us today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the invitation to be transformed, to not continue living in sin, go and sin no more. We can walk away from sin in our lives. We can turn from sin. And so I believe that Jesus would simply make this call to each one of us. Maybe you're here today and you feel condemnation in your walk with the Lord. Maybe it's because you're cognizant of your own sin. Maybe it's because there's sin in your life that you just can't seem to overcome. It just, you give in. You don't mean to, you don't want to, but you just give in. And there's condemnation and guilt and shame that goes with it. And you wouldn't want anyone to see your life being played out as a video in front of people like this woman's life apparently was being played out in front of all. And you'd say, I I would not want to face the shame and the humiliation, the condemnation and the guilt. And I just want you to know today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? In this community of faith right here, there's no shame. There's no shame. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've been involved in, no matter what you are currently engaged in and involved in, there is victory in Jesus. And there's victory in the family. We need each other. Concealed sin will be bondage in your life. Confessed sin will be an opportunity for victory and to walk in it. And it comes with no shame. Because at the end of the day, look at your neighbor and say, well, you're a sinner too. Just go ahead and do that. Look at your neighbor right now and say, well, you're a sinner too. I am. And you are too. (laughs) Well, you look at me. (laughs) We're sinners. We are sinners. And we are saved by grace. You cannot earn it. I cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to obtain it other than submit and give it to Jesus. And with him and in his family, there ought not be shame. There ought not be condemnation. There ought not be guilt.
but that we would just simply say, brother, I will walk with you, sister, I will walk with you, and we will seek victory as we walk this walk together. We need each other. Can I get an amen? amen. And if you, I'm going to invite you to stand with us, and Pastor Dennis and the team are going to lead us closing this song. If you would like prayer this morning, maybe you've had shame or condemnation in your walk with the Lord. In fact, for some, it's maybe it's turned you off from just being in a church, let alone being part of the church. It's, man, it's too judgmental in there. Maybe, maybe you've been judgmental and you're more like the Pharisees in this whole narrative here and you just want to call people out. You know, it's, this is, I'll probably go a little longer, sorry, but you're going to be standing. You know, the very thing that they tried to trap Jesus in, you remember, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and said, arise, take up your mat and walk. And they sought to kill Jesus because of this. You see, he had incited someone to violate what they thought was the Mosaic law. So the man who violated the Mosaic law, he was guilty for violating what they thought was the Mosaic law or the interpretation of that law. But Jesus was more guilty because he incited it. The very thing that they were accusing Jesus of is potentially the very thing they did. They may have incited this adultery so that they could have two witnesses of the adultery and now they are doubly guilty. You notice Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, but he catches them in their craftiness, right? The very thing they were trying to do to him came back on that you reap what you sow, right? And so no matter where you've been, no matter where I've been, if you would like prayer this morning, you just, you want that liberty and that freedom and you want to just know it, you want to mark today special. This was the day that I walked away from condemnation. This is the day that I walked away from guilt. This is the day that I walked away from shame that has haunted me because of my past. Jesus redeems it all, thanks be to God. He redeems it all. While this song is being played and we are singing as our benediction, our prayer team is gonna be up front. There'll be just a handful of them kind of in this area over here. You make your way during the song. Just come up during the song and let them pray with you, pray for you and encourage you in your walk of faith that there is no condemnation. Does that make sense? Can we maybe just dim the lights for this last song and Pastor Dennis will give us that benediction uh, at the very end. Thank you, Sarah. And our prayer team, some of those will be coming forward at this time. And then again, for the children, if you'd like to be one of those servants in the children's ministries, that barbecue is gonna be happening under the covered area up by the upper gym area. We would invite you to come after service and join us up there. Pastor Dennis, will you just lead us in this song and uh, then close us in a word of prayer. God bless you. It's great to be in the house of God. Amen. Oh.